Detective, what do you make of it? Here we have yet another body, another skull opened up with clinical precision. What manner of monster are we dealing with here? I don't believe we're dealing with a monster at all. Certainly not of the brain-gobbling ghoul sort sensationalized in the press. I've studied the ways of ghouls, Inspector, and they consume all hard and soft tissues. But they prefer the brain, yes? Yes, as does the common zombie or Mexican Vitellius. But look at what we see here. Not only was the brain and only the brain targeted, but different regions of the brain have been removed from victim to victim. Not a monster or even a cannibal then, but a a brain thief. Indeed. And look at the profiles of the victims and the portions of the brain pilfered from each one of them. The vernicus area and the angular gyrus of the noted linguist. The brocas area of the soliloquist. The best parts of the best brains. Our murderer is building himself the perfect brain out of stolen parts. But to what end? Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and this is my second take at pronouncing my own name. I'm glad I got it right this time. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about our stolen brains, our stolen heads. Uh, This is a topic that, yet again, like another one we did recently, this started as uh, an artifact episode that I was trying to develop, but then it quickly became clear to me that this was not a a short topic. This was a huge topic with all kinds of bizarre tangents and and, and dark alleys down which to tread. Uh, So I'm so excited to to embark on this two-parter about removing and stealing people's heads and people's brains. That's right. This one just keeps growing and expanding, dragging in more heads, more brains. It has an insatiable appetite, this topic. Yeah. Uh, one of the, So one of the original stories that I was looking at that got me interested in this was the uh, theft of the Austrian composer Franz Joseph Haydn's head in the early 19th century. And that's a story that we're, that we're going to come back to at the end of this first episode, part one here. But before that, I think it makes sense to to back up and look at the removal of heads in the context where it's probably more familiar to everyone, which is not in reality, but in, you know, fiction. Yeah, and, and we promise not to spend too long here because I know some of you might be saying, look, you guys have Friday's Weird House Cinema episodes now. You can pour all of your enthusiasm for horror movies into there. Uh, and maybe a little less gets used in the core episodes. But but there's still some important stuff to touch on here. And I think that the fiction sums up a lot of what's going on when we think about these topics. Okay. So, yeah, brain and head theft are frequent tropes in horror and science fiction, particularly of the 20th century. And a lot of this seems to be centered in notions and fears concerning identity and the scientific understanding of the brain as the seat of consciousness. Explored in such thoughtful science fiction films as Tammy and the T-Rex, or one, of, <laughs> one of the all-time great brain theft movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, there, there are various versions of this, right? You know, because sometimes the brain is just stolen. Uh, sometimes it's kept alive. Sometimes the head is kept alive, free of the body. You have a, you know, Jan in the pan situation. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's a human transplant, uh, putting uh, the head of one person onto the body of, of another, sometimes next to the original head of the other. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, the other, you know, 
and in a way, in their own way, sometimes a kind of a thoughtful uh, attempt to get at something, uh, you know, culturally, but other times just kind of this another rumination on the bizarre idea of what if my head but different body? What if two heads, same body? You know, uh, mm-hmm. there's just so much about this idea that continues to amaze us. What if my brain in a dinosaur? You exactly. Know, why not? <laughs> what if my brain in a robot? Um, you know, etc. Uh, so yeah, you'll, you'll find so many different versions of, of this, uh, living heads in jars, living brains in jars, head transplants between humans, brain transplants into other human beings, and of course, brain transplants into machines. And there's plenty to talk about here, even if we're just dealing with consensual brain and or head transplant. But then what if your head or brain were stolen, right? That becomes the, the extra level of potential horror. What if some mad science maniac were to plug your brain into the body of a hideous monster body or a killer robot? Or what if you were just reduced to nothing but a head bobbing around in a jar or even even more limiting, a brain uh, just shut off and alive inside of some sort of contraption? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, this is explored to some degree in things we've talked about on the show before. Uh, For example, the the thought experiment slash short story, Where Am I? by Daniel Mm -hmm. Dennett, which is all about – uh, brains being removed. And uh, that's ultimately trying to get at the question of what is the seat of consciousness and is it located in a place, uh, yeah. you know, given various, you know, constraints and, and, and thought experiments about like how brains could be replicated with machinery. Uh, but but also th- there are, I guess, much less technical explorations of the subject where it's just kind of like, uh, you know, the Futurama model where you're yeah. just <laughs> preserving a head or preserving a brain to supposedly keep the keep the consciousness alive after the body dies or after the body is superseded by some superior technology. I think both of us really enjoy um, the character Kane from RoboCop 2, where you have oh, yes. a, a Noonan brain in a jar uh, powering a a mechanized death machine. Yeah, Tom Noonan, uh, and he he's just like pain embodied controlling a killer robot, which is a yeah. brilliant idea. There's even like a drug insertion because he's he was he's addicted to some sort of super drug, right? Oh yeah, the, the drug called Nuke. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Oh, RoboCop Two is amazing. Um, there's a, there's actually a really excellent Star Wars tie in here as well. I mean, you have a lot of cybernetic stuff going on in Star Wars, but you have this one creature. I don't know if you remember it, Joe, uh, because it kind of just walks around in the background briefly in Return of the Jedi. Mm. Uh, uh, but it looks like a mechanical spider, and then it has this glass-looking container or sphere hanging underneath it. And inside, there's fluid and what appears to be a brain of some sort. Uh, I don't think I made the brain connection when I watched Return of the Jedi as a kid, but it just looked like a big mechanical spider. I, th- I think the brain thing is explored more in, I don't know what you call it, the the supplementary Star Wars universe material, the encyclopedias and all that. Yeah, I remember reading, I think there's a whole story about them in Tales from Jabba's Palace, or at least there's a story that, that concerns them to some degree. But mm-hmm. we are told in in uh, other forms that this these are the uh, the remains of the Biomar monks. Um, and I'm just going to read this quick passage from Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> it says as follows, quote, The Biomar Order, which consisted of Biomar monks, was a religious order that believed in isolating themselves from all physical sensation to enhance the power of their minds. To that aim, enlightened monks had their brains transplanted into nutrient-filled jars. Whenever they wanted to move, those bottled brains used spider-like droid walkers. 
I can just imagine the purity hierarchy. It's like, oh, you, you're going to walk around in your spider today instead of just sitting there in a jar doing nothing? Okay. Well, I mean, sometimes you have to have your nu- nutrient fluid uh, switched out, right? I'm guessing there's like maybe one machine in Jabba's palace that does that, and you got to get there early. I mean, I guess if you're addicted to the pleasures of the flesh. <laughs> So that's just a, that's just a brief glance at some of the many many uh, variations of this that you'll find in sci-fi and horror uh, because it, we can't get enough of it because at, at the heart of it there are so there are several different um, you know enigmas and conundrums uh, and paradoxes that that emerge you know because it's dealing with what we are and who we are and just sort of that uh, some of the the mysteries that that seem to revolve around. Uh, our, our fleshly self and some of the more supernatural ideas uh, about what we are, and of course some of the you know the mysteries of consciousness itself. Yeah, and that's interesting. When you get into mysteries, one of the great things to wonder is um, as far as consciousness and its relationship to different types of tissue in the body, nervous system tissue in the brain versus other parts of the body. You always kind of wonder. Um, what did ancient people know, you know, or what mm-hmm. did they suspect before we had modern neuroscience and anatomy? And uh, and there is something interesting you can observe. It's not necessarily going to be theft like we're talking about in a lot of our examples, though in some cases it probably is. But there are interesting cases you can observe from the ancient world and from ancient religion where sometimes the head or the brain were treated differently than some other parts of the body were, which indicated at least something some interesting belief yeah yeah this is this gets really fascinating uh now first of all we should stress that we modern humans are probably just mostly focused on the idea of the brain being the seat of the mind and the self uh because we also paradoxically carry along other ideas with us you know Mm -hmm. there's so many just parts of our language and just the way we think about ourselves that we may talk about feeling something with our heart and when we do that we may on some level position our, uh, our our center of being and position our mind in the middle of our torso um, right, my gut feeling, yeah. Yeah, your gut feeling, et cetera. And you can take this even further, of course, getting into various, um, uh, you know, supernatural and religious ideas about, say, various chakras and energy points in the body, um, you know, and uh, and we can carry this around with us and also carry around a, sci- a more or less scientific understanding of the brain, Um you know, and we can we can believe in both. We can we can uh, you know dip out of both steamer trays uh, <laughs> as it suits us. Yeah, obviously people do. I mean, like the a lot of people probably believe in some type of supernatural mind in one way or another. But then also, like you would consult a neurologist if you needed to. Right, and in you know, I'm I'm always a kind of of two minds on all of this because on one mm-hmm. hand, you know, we we. The, the brain is is the 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 author of uh, of of all these ideas. You know, I mean, it is the the, the center of our being, and we see that uh, um, you know, and that that bears out anytime there is a brain injury, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also, we're not just the brain; we're also the body. Mm-hmm. And while you know, you might be stretching it to say that you're you know you're thinking something or feeling something with your heart in the same way that you would with your mind. Uh, you know, there is this. Um, we are more than just the brain. We are this entire organism. 
Yeah, that's something that I think is often overlooked in these, uh, like, so the, the Bomar monks or whatever, they're, the, the brain in a jar with a spider body, and you think like, well, that's just pure mental existence, you know, as if you, you'll just live forever in this mechanical setup and you can have your, your pure mind continuing to do whatever it does, meditation or, or whatever. But I think that might be really underappreciating how much your mental life would be changed if you were only your brain and did not have the rest of your body for the brain to interact with. Yeah, that's why General Grievous got to bring his guts with him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's not just a brain. He's also eyeballs and guts in there, so. Well, I mean, and there's even literal feedback. I mean, in some ways, the brain is influenced, for example, by hormones that are secreted by organs in other parts of the body. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, in thinking about what ancient peoples thought, though, uh, it's, it's impossible to get into this discussion without, of course, touching on the ancient Egyptians, uh, because as many of you are probably already thinking about, they famously removed and discarded the brain during embalming while taking great care to store various other organs in canopic jars. Yet at the same time, the ancient Egyptians are responsible for the oldest written record using the word brain. Uh, I mean, it wasn't brain, you know, obviously, but it was uh, you know, the hieroglyphics for brain are known. We see it in a 1700 BCE text that was in turn apparently based on texts that go back to about 3000 BCE. Uh, this is the so-called Edwin Smith surgical papyrus named for the American Egyptologist who discovered it. Okay, so we're looking at it now. The the hieroglyphic word form that meant the brain, the organ, it's like a bird and then something that looks maybe like a feather or a knife and then like a hook-shaped thing and then what looks like maybe a bee or a fly. Yeah, yeah. I guess the hook – I I have no idea, but the hook thing is very suggestive, of course, uh, not being entirely sure what this, this, uh, these hieroglyphics um, – uh, individually, these parts of it mean because of course we think about the hook that is used to carefully remove the brain uh, <laughs> tissue during embalming, um, which was a, a delicate procedure because you had to do it apparently as well without um, you had to take care not to damage the facial features uh, during the removal. Mm-hmm. And it, and one thing that's important to realize here is that the Egyptians didn't necessarily think the brain was garbage or anything, but it was one of the first organs to go foul. Uh, mm. Part of their practice was to first remove the organs that decayed rapidly. And this certainly included the brain. This is going to tie directly into an account from the early 19th century that we're going to talk about later in the episode about a very prominent and fascinating case of head theft. All right. Um, Just briefly, some other uh, tidbits about uh, our history of understanding the brain. Uh, In the 4th century BCE, Aristotle considered the brain to be a secondary organ that cooled the heart, a place where the spirit could circulate. The heart was the center of thought, though. Now, in the 2nd century CE, uh, Galen concluded that the brain was the seat of the animal soul, uh, one of three souls in the body. Uh, But this was uh, based in part on his observations of the effects of brain injuries on mental activity. So, again, even if you... Even if you, you, you were really clinging to some idea that, uh, that thought and being is tied up in the torso, you know, after a while it becomes clear that when things happen to the head, yeah. um, it, can, it can drastically affect how we think and how we, uh, we process. Yeah, that seems like that would have probably been one of the earliest ways that people could deduce the important role of the brain, not just because 
you could make the argument that sometimes it somehow kind of feels like thought is taking place in the head. Obviously, it didn't always feel like that to everybody. Some people must have thought it felt like it was happening somewhere else. But but yeah, you notice that you hit somebody in the head. It is much more likely to have uh, a complex and profound effects on how they think and how they feel than hitting them in any other part of the body. Yeah, it's interesting how, again, it's unavoidable in our language, right? So mm-hmm. we talk about like putting our thinking cap on, you know, where just so many times like we're, we're thinking really hard, we might do something involving our head, we might touch our head. Mm-hmm. But if you were living in a culture that was more based in an idea that it was, that thinking was based in the, like, the chest, mm-hmm. would you put your... I don't know your your thinking brazier on. Would you <laughs> would you sort of like hold uh, your chest a little bit as you as you think? I don't know. Yeah, and I also wonder what are the limits to that. Like, is is the, is it possible that if you just had the right cultural ideas fed into you as you were growing up, that it would literally feel to you like you were thinking with your feet or thinking with your knees or something? Or is there a sort of limited range of where it can feel like thinking is happening? I don't know. This is fascinating. I hadn't really thought about all this before. Maybe there's some papers out there that get into it that would it would be interesting to to read about. Yeah. But at any rate, from here, we gradually built up an improved understanding of how the brain functioned, though much remained unknown for a considerable amount of time, uh, leading to what I've seen referred to as a, quote, cultural anatomy of the brain that doesn't necessarily match up with the neurological reality. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, there's one example from ancient history, or I guess actually this would be prehistory, uh, of how heads were treated in a way that was somewhat different than how the rest of the body was treated. And this comes from the ancient Neolithic or Chocolithic Neolithic uh, settlement known as Chattelhuyuk from Turkey. It's a place in southern Turkey that was uh, thousands of years BCE. Did, Did you have the date on that? Um, I, I read that it thrived back in 7,500 BC. Yeah. I mean, it was around for a while, but I think that was like the period of its it, the height of its, uh, population and power. And so it's one of the earliest large human settlements that we have, uh, evidence of sustained habitation at. There were all of these houses that were sort of built right next to each other. They were built up and you would enter them through the roof. It was like a grid of sort of cubicle houses. You'd go in through the roof and there are these living spaces that uh, archaeologists can still explore today. And it's fascinating to try to put together the culture of the people who lived at Chattelhuyuk because one of the things observed there is sometimes uh, sometimes there would be mortuary practices that would involve apparently incorporating the dead bodies of friends and family members into like the furniture, just into stuff mm-hmm. inside the house where the people were living. So the body of a dead relative might be buried underneath the bed where you sleep. But one of the other really interesting things sometimes observed there is the removal of heads from dead bodies, presumably family members, where the head would be taken off and uh, and then covered in some kind of plaster and just like kept in the house. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating because in this we we get into you know you sort of have to strip away sort of your modern. Uh, funerary customs and ideas about what is what is proper to do with the with the body of the deceased, etc. And you, if you try and sort of put yourself in this 
this different mindset and imagine like how do we relate to the bodies uh, that no longer have life in them you know what mm-hmm. what is the what is the skull of the dead uh now that they have you know now that the individual has passed on you know you if you, you get into this sort of like base area then you you can build up from there and imagine how some of these these customs could have taken root yeah, and it uh, it definitely signals like how variable and culturally determined our feelings about the treatment of dead bodies are because I think now and it's probably very somewhat to culture even today, but in most of the cultures we're familiar with, like if you were to take grandma's dead body and like cut her head off and cover it with plaster and put it on a desk, that would widely be seen as like disrespectful in some way, but here it's the exact opposite. It it seems to suggest that this is a way of revering the dead and in some way it has some kind of religious significance or ritual use. Yeah. Like nowadays you, you sit down and you watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you say, this is not right. This, <laughs> right. this family of Texan cannibals are, are, are not being respectful to the, the dead. But you could make a case for most of the things they're doing and say, no, they're being very respectful. Um, to a, to, a, to, a, to a point. I'm only going to defend the, the Sawyers so much, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, but but no, there is a lot to consider, like, you know, what happens to the body when it dies and or what do we do to the body when it dies and how we uh, approach these different uh, views of death. Like they have a huge impact on not only how we, we treat the bodies of the dead, but then also like how we think about death itself. Yeah. And so we're going to be focusing in these episodes on some cases of, of brains and heads being taken off of bodies um, or or being stolen in one way or another uh, without the consent of the person involved. But there, we should at least note that there are plenty of cases where heads are removed, brains are removed, and this was according to the wishes of the person from whose body they're being taken. Right. Yeah. So a few, I, I think, mostly, if not completely consensually preserved brains worth mentioning. Uh, one, one of the big ones that, that probably a lot of people are thinking of is, is Broca's brain. Um, and one of the reasons, of course, is that Carl Sagan has a whole book uh, titled uh, Broca's Brain uh, because one of the essays in it uh, deals with it specifically. And I'll get back to that in just a second. But Paul Broca lived 1824 through 1880. He was a French surgeon and neurologist who played a major role in the mid in mid 19th century medicine and was the founder of modern brain surgery. He also supported some extremely prejudiced ideas, uh, but his work with the brain itself was exp- it was it was extremely important. Uh, as such, he worked a lot with human brains, uh, and many of the preserved brains that he worked with can still be found at the Pierre and Marie Curie University uh, in Paris, and that potentially includes Broca's own brain. Uh, The museum has apparently denied that it can be found there, but there are accounts that say that his brain ended up on a shelf alongside the others. And Carl Sagan, in the book Broca's Brain, in the the, the chapter or essay dealing with this, he discusses holding the jar and uh, that allegedly contained it, saying, quote, it was Broca himself whose brain I was cradling, who had established the macabre collection I had been contemplating. And from there, Sagan goes on to question just how much of who Broca was is still in there. You know, is the physical brain in the jar, uh, is, is that him? Is this some remnant of him? It, it, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful section of the book that you should, you should read. But mm-hmm. it's um, uh, pro- probably one of the, the more famous preserved or allegedly preserved brains. 
Yeah. And yeah, that raises really interesting questions. Like in a way, is it possible even to think about the person as an object or is a person something more like a process? Yeah. And then also like the whole seeming mystery about whether there's there's an actual uh, specimen that is Broga's brain. It does also bring up the question, you know, once the brain is removed, how do you tell whose it was, especially when you're dealing with an old brain like this, you know? Yeah. It's not like you can just hook it up, fire it up and see what memories are in there, et cetera. Right. Uh, but of course, so there's a question about this one, but there are examples of people who were just like, yep, you know, you use my brain, do something with it. Yeah. Charles Babbage is a great example of this, who lived 1791 through 1871. The father of the computer, as he's sometimes known, he mm-hmm. donated his brain to science. And today you can see it. Uh, in two halves, <laughs> one side of it at London Science Museum and the other at the uh, Hunterian Museum in the Royal College of Surgeons. Now, wait a minute. Did Ada Lovelace also have her brain preserved or, or just Babbage? It'd be um, great I, if you could see him side I did not by run side. Across, I did not run across <laughs> her brain, but I, I guess it would be great to see him side by side. I Hooked up I was, to the same computer. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting how um, it is presented in two half i mean there's so much so many directions you could go there with that right uh, uh but yeah the, you go to one place to see one hemisphere and the other to see the other hemisphere um i i wonder if i mean when you look at those hemispheres do you is there a feeling like this is wrong these should be reunited the brain should be it's okay to preserve a brain and display it but it should be displayed as a whole complete piece but I don't know, maybe not. Now, as far as famous people go, quite a few athletes uh, have pledged their brain to science in an effort to better understand concussions, you know, and then a lot of people just in general donate uh, their bodies and, and or their organs to, to science. Um, and, and so a lot of uh, you know, brain study continues uh, in, this, in this manner. Uh, by the way, by most all accounts, and certainly all accounts that matter, we should point out that Walt Disney did not have his body, brain, or head frozen following his death. Oh, that's uh, a popular uh, myth, isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, and I, th- I was reading about it. Apparently, it's largely based on the fact that he was interested in the topic at some point and, and in general was known to be interested in, in, in scientific topics. And therefore, it just kind of like carried away. Like what you know about Disney, you're like, oh, well, it seems like something he would do. He did it. Yeah, it's just like, oh, he's weird enough. <laughs> so I guess if we're in, in the modern era for, for now and uh, talking about brains that were actually just straight up stolen, probably the most famous brain theft uh, in, in the modern world happened to the body of Albert Einstein. And I guess we'll maybe come back and talk about that more later as we go on. Uh, but he is by no means the only one. I, I want to back up and tell a story from the early 1800s about the famous composer Joseph Haydn. Uh, and so a couple of sources I was looking at here, one is a book by Francis Larson published in 2014 called Severed, A History of Heads Lost and Heads Found. And the part of this that I was reading is just wonderful. So I might have to go back and read this entire book at some point. Um, but the other is just a biography of Haydn called Haydn, A Creative Life in Music by Carl Geiringer and Irene Geiringer from University of California Press in 1982. And so uh, just to Brief background on on Franz Joseph Haydn, also just known as Joseph Haydn. He was a renowned classical composer from Austria who lived from 1732 until 1809. He was very influential. I think he was sort of a mentor figure to some other later composers like Mozart. And 
probably the fact that most people know about him today, or at least the one that I remember from school, is that he was the composer of what's known as the Surprise Symphony. It's a composition that is very kind of dreamy and sleepy and then has these sudden extremely loud chords that will almost like make you pee yourself. Like they will wake you up if you are falling asleep at the at the on orchestra night. I wonder if we can play some some public domain selections of of Haydn music while I'm telling the story of how his head was hacked off and stolen. Okay, so the the story of Haydn around the time of his death, uh, especially as told in the Guy Ringer book here, is what I'm starting with. So for a long time, Haydn was the court musician of a Hungarian noble family called the Esterhazy family. Uh, so I guess you can imagine something kind of like if you've seen the movie Amadeus, you know, the role Salieri mm-hmm. plays in the Austrian emperor's court in that movie. He's the, the court composer, the court musician, uh, kind of there to to do musical work for and flatter this rich family. Except, of course, this would not have been the emperor. This was just one particular noble house, the Esterhazy line. And Haydn died in 1809. He died in Vienna, I think actually while Vienna was being occupied by Napoleon's troops. So there was a war zone situation happening, uh, and his body was not taken back to this uh, this remote castle where the Esterhazy family lived because I think I, I think it had something to do with the war situation is why he was kept in Vienna near where his house or apartment was and he was buried in a local cemetery known as the Hunsturm Cemetery and that same year the the prince of the Esterhazy line I think it was Nicholas Esterhazy he put in an application to have Haydn's body dug up from the cemetery and transferred to Eisenstadt, which was the seat of the Esterhazy house. And permission for the disinterment was granted, but Esterhazy never actually did it. He got permission, but then he just kind of forgot about it and Haydn stayed there. Haydn's tomb stayed as it was. But finally, in 1820, Esterhazy, uh, to quote from the Geiringer book, quote, was reminded of his obligations by Adolphus Frederick, Duke of Cambridge. This distinguished visitor observed, after attending a gala performance of The Creation, which was an oratorio of Haydn's, given in his honor at Eisenstadt, quote, How fortunate was the man who employed this Haydn in his lifetime and now possesses his mortal remains. Which, <laughs> that moment... I'm just imagining that like Prince Esterhazy must have been like, ooh, yeah, yeah, that. But apparently he did not correct his guest, though immediately after this, he gave orders to have the body exhumed from the cemetery in Vienna and brought over to Eisenstadt and re-entombed at a church there uh, near the castle. The church was called Bergkirche, which was where Haydn had often performed some of the masses that he wrote for the Esterhazy family. Uh, so the order goes through, and uh, but then the Geiringers write, quote, When the coffin was opened for identification, the horrified officials found no head on the body, but only the wig. Oh. And this seems especially bad because, like, it would be harder for Esterhazy at this point to pretend that he just had Haydn's body where it was supposed to be all along 
It kind of reminds me of that situation where like somebody gives you a gift, like an appliance that you don't really want and you never opened and they keep asking you if you like it. You're like, yeah, we use it all the time. It's great. And then they're going to come over to your house and you're like, hey, let's use that blender or whatever it was. And then you finally open it and discover that it's missing a piece or it's broken or something. But so obviously uh, Prince Esterhazy was not amused that Haydn's head had been stolen. He was really mad and he made inquiries about the missing head. And soon the mystery was solved. It turned out it was sort of an inside job. The culprits who stole the head were Haydn's friend, uh, apparently not a super close friend, but they knew each other. Uh, A friend of Haydn's named Joseph Carl Rosenbaum, who had been employed by the Esterhazy family. And then another guy named Johann uh, Nepomuk Peter, who was the administrator of a penitentiary somewhere in Austria. So why would these guys, including a former friend of Haydn's, dig up his grave, steal his head, and then cover everything back up? Well, the answer is that they were amateur phrenologists. And I'll come back to the subject in more detail in, in, in a few minutes and th- I guess throughout a couple of th- both of these episodes, but... The short explanation of what's going on here is that they were devotees of the then-popular pseudoscience of phrenology, and they were fans of its leading proponent at this time and place, the German anatomist Franz Joseph Gall, who lived 1758 to 1828. And yes, I did also notice that Franz Joseph Gall has the same first and middle name as Haydn. I don't know if there's any reason for that. Maybe a bunch of boys were named after a king or something at this time. Don't know if you have any insights on the on the Franz Josephs. Maybe it's just a total coincidence. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure off the top of my head. I don't know any. I don't know any Franz Josephs. <laughs> uh, but so they, the, these two guys, Rosenbaum and Peter, wanted Haydn's head because they wanted to conduct a pseudoscientific dissection of the skull to determine its characteristics according to phrenological theory uh, to see if you could read his musical genius in the shape of his skull. Uh, So I'll come back to that aspect in a bit, but uh, together these guys bribed a gravedigger in the Vienna Cemetery to dig up Haydn a few days after his funeral, hack off his head, and deliver it to them, quote, to protect it from desecration. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, according to to Larson, the gravedigger did this. It was a few nights after the burial. He chopped off the head, wrapped it up in some rags, and then handed it off to Rosenbaum. And Rosenbaum had a carriage waiting nearby, and he was on the way taking the head to the carriage. But he was so curious to see it that he peeled back the rags uh, to to take a peek. But this was June, and Haydn had been dead for a while at this point. And the body was already beginning to rot. And apparently Rosenbaum was so overwhelmed by the sight and the smell that he just vomited in the cemetery. But then got right back to business. So he got into the carriage, went straight to Vienna Hospital, where the skull was defleshed and the brain was removed from its casing. And Rosenbaum described the scene later in his own writing. This is quoted in Larson, quote, The sight made a lifelong impression on me. The dissection lasted for one hour. The brain, which was of large proportions, stank the most terribly of all. I endured it to the end. And that's what I was thinking of when you mentioned earlier that uh, the brain, uh, according to the Egyptians at least, was one of the earliest parts of the body to spoil and smell bad, which might have had something to do with the process for its early removal. Yeah, well, I've, I've read this other places as well. In fact, Q 
tomorrow's episode of The Artifact will touch on how quickly a brain will rot. Well, apparently Rosenbaum noticed, like he could, despite the fact that they had a whole head there, he's like, the brain was the worst. (laughs) But anyway, uh, at the Vienna hospital here, the skin, muscle, and the brain were burned in the furnace, and then the skull was soaked in lime to clean the bones so it could be measured for the the phrenology purposes. And this soaking would take a while, so uh, while that was going on, Rosenbaum went back home, and he and Peter at some point designed a case with which to hold the skull. Uh, the guy ringers write, quote, Peter had a black wooden box made with a golden lyre at the top and glass windows. In it, the skull was placed on a white silk cushion trimmed with black, uh, which reminds me very much of some of the displays I've seen of uh, supposedly incorruptible saints' bodies and mm-hmm. you know the, the relics of, of saints in old Catholic and Orthodox uh, museums, or not, mu- not museums, cathedrals. Yeah, they didn't just uh, stick it on the table and put a candle on top of it or let a, a right. raven perch on it. You know, <laughs> they, they did it upright. Yeah, you get a nice glass box. Uh, but this one here has a golden lyre. And Larson actually has a very wonderful passage about this that I wanted to quote. Uh, she calls attention to the fact that this box was ornamented with a golden lyre. And she asks if this might have been intended as a reference to the Greek god Orpheus. Uh, so here I'm quoting from Larson whose music carried him safely into the underworld to save his wife Eurydice. Rosenbaum's own dark and earthy mission had been driven by his passion for music and his admiration of Haydn as a composer. He, too, had retrieved his love from the rod of the netherworld. If the lyre did refer to Orpheus, there may have been other symbolic resonances at work as well. In one version of the myth, Orpheus lost his own head when his body was ripped apart and thrown into the sea by the women of Thrace and Macedonia. Later, Orpheus's head was found floating in the river Meles, fresh and vigorous and still singing mournfully. The place where it was buried became a shrine and an oracle for pilgrims. And uh, that is interesting to me because within this special box, Haydn's severed head would become kind of like a shrine within Rosenbaum's house. It's so weird to, to, to think about this in terms of patrons and artists, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, like what, if, what if today on Patreon or, uh, or some <laughs> sort of a Kickstarter, like that was a, a tier level? Like if you yeah. support me then you can cut off my head when I'm dead and uh, run off with my skull. Or you will be be tasked with keeping my body and protecting it. (laughs) That (laughs) sort of thing. The Platinum Club membership, yeah. Yeah. But to a certain extent, at least a metaphorical level, um, you know, a lot of this does kind of weirdly match up with some of our attitudes about celebrity, you know, and and dead celebrities and creators, you know, and how we how we treat them and uh, regard them after their death, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like literally turning, turning their, their, their deaths into, uh, and sometimes their places of burial into, into holy shrines. Mm-hmm. And that, like you're invoking this whole pseudoscientific field to uh, come up with a physical explanation for their supposedly superhuman genius. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so to come back to the story, years go by. Uh, we already narrated the intervening events. Remember, so Prince Esterhazy, at some point, he's reminded like, oh, yeah, ooh, Haydn's body. Ooh, I need – yeah, that should be here. Uh, so so back to the investigation because they discovered no head, only a wig in the, <laughs> in the coffin. And um, – so they had uh, Haydn's body moved to the castle at Eisenstadt where the prince wanted it, but the prince was f- 
furious because there was no head and he had them investigate. And eventually somehow it, it was figured out that uh, Peter and Rosenbaum had been, you know, the ones implicated here that they would have been the people who took the head. And so the police went to interrogate Peter who said that he had given the head to Rosenbaum. And then the investigators went to Rosenbaum's house and they searched for the skull, but they didn't find it quote, since Rosenbaum's wife, the opera singer, Teresa Gassman hid the skull in her straw mattress and lay down on the bed. (laughs) And then to to finish up the story, uh, the guy ringers write, quote, the prince now tried bribery and his emissary promised Rosenbaum a large sum if he would deliver the skull, whereupon the skull of an old man was handed to the prince and buried with Haydn's body. Uh, Not unnaturally, prince, prince, okay, so fake skull handed off for a bribe. Mm -hmm. Not unnaturally, Prince Esterhazy did not keep his promise of a reward, but uh, but neither had the wary ex-secretary acted honestly since he had not delivered the right skull. Oh. (laughs) So it's a double, double cross. But I wonder if they both leave happy with that, you know? It's like, all right, I've got a skull. I can literally lay this to rest. Somebody's skull. It might not have the right kind of uh, musical genius bump, but uh, yeah, somebody's skull is in there, but the guy did not get his money. Uh, And then finally they say, uh, on his deathbed, Rosenbaum gave Haydn's skull to his collaborator, to Peter, and, quote, made him promise uh, to leave it in his will to the Museum of Gesellschaft der Musikfreund, uh, in Vienna, the owner of a great number of valuable Haydn relics. So the Haydn skull stayed there from 1895 until 1954, uh, and then eventually there was a there was a mausoleum built in Bergkirche that. Uh, that church in uh, in Eisenstadt where the body was supposed to be. Eventually, it was in 1954 that the skull was finally reunited with the rest of the body. But I think at least for a while, maybe for, maybe permanently after that, but at least for a while, there were two skulls in the grave because they also had the original fake uh, decoy skull that had been interred with the, the body in the wig. So they had a friend, really, a roommate. Right, exactly. Uh, but this brings me back to to the pseudoscience underlying uh, th- this this head theft mission here. Why did Rosenbaum and Peter steal the head? Again, they were enthusiastic amateur phrenologists. They were students of the German anatomist Franz Joseph Gall, uh, who again he's credited with pioneering the now discredited field of phrenology. Uh, now, Gall apparently made some legitimate contributions to the development of neuroscience and neuroanatomy, but I think whatever these legitimate contributions were, they are now overshadowed in his legacy by the association with phrenology, which is just one of the most awful and rightfully infamous pseudosciences in human history. Mm-hmm. And we can explain more about phrenology uh, across this couple of episodes. But uh, the short version is that phrenologists incorrectly believed that you could make accurate inferences about human mental traits like – uh, like personality traits, moral characteristics, and intellectual aptitudes by measuring the shape and the contours of people's skulls, particularly bumps on the skull. So if there's a bump in a certain place right near the top of your head, that might show that you have a special propensity for veneration. Maybe you'd be a good candidate for the clergy. But if there's a pronounced ridge over the top of your ear, that is a swelling of the organ of destructiveness, and you will surely become a violent criminal, etc. 
And I think you can pair phrenology along with what's known as physiognomy more broadly. Uh, physiognomy is the belief that you can accurately assess a person's mental characteristics by looking at their outward appearance. Often physiognomy would focus on the face. You'd see these charts of like, oh, if somebody has a face like this, it means that they're, they're very sanguine and, uh, and, and they're, you know, prone to laughter and to gluttony. And somebody has a face like this and they're, you know, without a doubt a murderer. Uh, and so phrenology and that kind of thing, they led to all kinds of horribly misguided applications in pseudoscientific criminology, uh, supposed scientific justifications for racism and ethnic prejudice, for gender prejudice and so forth. And it's weird because phrenology, like if you explain it today, it's one of those things that sounds so stupid on its face. It's hard mm -hmm. to see how people ever believed it. But phrenology was hugely influential, especially in the first half of the 1800s, uh, though it was uh, it should be said it was not like everybody believed it at the time. It was subjected to fierce scientific criticism even during its heyday. But that doesn't mean it did not find very popular applauding audiences. Yeah, like you said, so much of the time it ends up being this way of saying those horrible things you think when you look at certain people's skulls and faces, those feelings are backed up by scientific principles. And here they are. Right. And and in that, you know, you can see why that would be enough. To, to hook people who wanted to believe these things. Oh, yeah. It's great to tell people like that, you know, you can have a, a, a scientific justification for whatever gut feeling you get when you look at somebody. Yeah. Like, oh, this guy, he has the, you know, the the pointy top of the head of a genius or, you know, <laughs> this lady, uh, my wife won't do what I tell her because there's something wrong with the shape of her skull and science proves it. Mm. Now, the tragedy of phrenology started with some premises that are basically true. Like it started with the idea that the personality and mental traits are in large part determined by processes in the brain. Of course, that's true. We, we know that today. And, uh, and with the premise that some brain functions are especially dependent on localized regions in the brain. So we also know that's basically true. Like, you know, visual processing depends especially on the visual cortex in the back of the head. Speech is especially dependent on the area now known as Broca's area, which is on the left side of the brain near the front of the head. Uh, and these were real discoveries of early neuroscience, that there were regions of the brain that correlated with certain types of mental activity, though not always as strictly as some people think. Um, but from these real discoveries was extrapolated this flawed chain of reasoning that led to phrenology. And according to people like Franz Joseph Gall, it would go something like this. So you'd say the mind is a product of the brain, you know, apparently true or at least mostly true. The brain is not a homogenous mass, but there, you know, there are different parts of it that do different things. That's generally true. But then the next leap is to the size of a localized part of the brain will be correlated to how powerful its associated mental faculty is, which is not necessarily true. And then from there you get to, well, you get bumps on the outside of the skull that will indicate the size and therefore the strength of the underlying regions of the brain, which that's pretty much not true. And then therefore you can make a generalized map of the skull to find which shapes and bumps and protuberances create which personality characteristics and aptitudes, which at this point is just completely wrong. Yeah, you can just imagine the branch on the tree here just going, uh, growing gradually more crooked yeah. <laughs> the further you go. Right. Yeah. Um, 
But for a few decades, at least, phrenology, again, proved extremely popular, again, as, as it was especially during like the first half of the 19th century. Uh, and there's an interesting section in Larson's book where she attributes at least some of the appeal of phrenology to Franz Joseph Gall's skills at public speaking and the allure of his lectures. Uh, she writes that he always gave his public addresses with props surrounded by his personal collections of heads, which he would pick up and use for demonstration to enraptured audiences. You know, he, here's the skull of a man who was consumed in life by vanity. You can see the bulge corresponding to his organ of Conceit, uh, or here's the skull of a genius composer. Observe the swelling above his organ of music, etc. And uh, then Larson writes, quote, when fresh specimens were available, his assistant would dissect an animal brain or occasionally a human brain in front of the audience. Gall's talks became famous in Vienna and later throughout Northern Europe, and they were attended by a wide cross-section of the public, from tourists and tradesmen to ambassadors and academics. The combination of medical terminology, visual aids – few members of the public can have seen a dissection before – and talented oratory was intoxicating. After a lecture, people queued up to have their own heads read by Gall. This was science endowed with psychic powers, the scientist who knew you better than you knew yourself, and all thanks to the secrets inscribed in the shape of your head. But, but I mean, the, the horrible part being, of course, that it was all just completely wrong. Phrenology had no empirically verifiable basis. Its founding premises were incorrect, and it could not make accurate predictions about future findings. But it was popular nonetheless, and it seems like at least to some extent, its popularity had more to do with the personal flair and charisma of its founding popularizer than with its empirical merits. And this is something I think about a lot. I think this is mm -hmm. always something to be really conscious of. It is so, so easy to mistake good public speaking for truth. Yes. Uh, the, you know, the, the allure of a weakly supported claim delivered by a charismatic voice is always present and something to, you know, be conscious of to like ask yourself if that's happening in your brain. If you are thinking something is true because somebody is good at talking and they're saying it. Uh, and I think about digital versions of this today, the digital versions of the Viennese lecture halls, uh, like YouTube, where you know, I, I get a feeling that there is a huge undercurrent of ideological shaping that often takes place on a similar basis here. Viewers of things like YouTube and even podcasts, we could say, mm -hmm. listen to somebody mainly because they're a compelling speaker. They're captivating to listen to. They, you know, they, they're good with words. There's something nice about their voice, whatever that is. And over time can end up adopting their beliefs or claims, regardless of whether there's a good reason for the claims themselves. Yeah, you know, I mean, it makes me think back to, uh, you know, Carl Sagan, who I mentioned earlier. I mean, Sagan was an individual who uh, every, everything tended to line up for him, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a great scientific mind, an excellent speaker and science communicator. Mm -hmm. uh, but you don't have to have everything line up with a person. And, and many times it does not. You have plenty of great scientists who are not natural public speakers. Mm -hmm. And you have plenty of natural public speakers who do not have a mind for science or an appreciation for science and are maybe not interested in in, in pressing the science like the, the, they may use the science in some cases mm -hmm. uh, when it suits them but that is not their their primary goal well i would say one thing that really works against us here is the tragic disjunction of the fact that uh one of the most compelling 
qualities in a speaker. One of the things that makes people most fun to listen to as a speaker is confidence. Mm -hmm. And yet being a good communicator of science often requires you to be extremely circumspect and to repeatedly intone, you know, communicate doubt and to repeatedly yeah. communicate, you know, we're not sure about this, that, you know, that these are reasons for thinking so, but there are reasons against it and all that, which goes exactly against some of the things that make somebody the most fun to just like watch lectures from. Right, right. And this is true at, at, at various levels and in different ways. It's certainly true at our level because we are we are not experts in the topics that we discuss. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we always have to admit this could this could be wrong and or this is changing. This mm -hmm. could change uh, because then we get into the, the level of just that's what science is. So you'll encounter, you know, experts in their field who are also voicing the same level of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And um, there are times where that is not as convincing as someone uh, who, uh, you know, who's very sure of themselves, mm -hmm. like the, the, the uh, uh, yeah, and, the, the, you know, you can easily think of various examples of this. Um, yeah, you can see why the, you, know, you can be drawn into the siren song of someone who's absolutely, seems absolutely certain about what they're talking about versus someone who says, well, we're still figuring it out. All right, well, you know, we're almost out of time here, but I, I want to share another story of brain theft. And this one comes to us from, 2016. Oh, no. Uh, I don't know if you ran across this one, Joe, uh, but the basic premise here is summed up well in the headline, this headline from the Daily Mail. Oh, my nemesis. Are you going to make me click on a Daily Mail article? Uh, <laughs> oh well, I, God, also, I also provided you with, or maybe I didn't. Yeah, I did provide you with another uh, uh, report as well from CBS Pittsburgh. Okay. So your choice. Uh, okay, so 30,000 caveats to whatever this story is, but I do want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Daily Mail headline was, Burglar Stole Human Brain, Nicknamed It Freddy, and Used the Embalming Fluid to Get High. Um, and there were various versions of this, this headline that were, that were traded about in 2016. Uh, so what happened here is, okay, this is Pennsylvania, okay. where allegedly a 26-year-old uh, individual was in jail on burglary charges when his grandma discovered a human brain underneath the porch in a Walmart bag. Okay. Allegedly, the stolen brain named Freddy uh, by what? the 26-year-old individual. Oh, okay. He named it. Okay. He named it Freddy. Was being used for its embalming fluid, which the accused and, the, and a friend used to soak their marijuana uh, in prior to smoking said marijuana. Oh, no. If that's true, that... No, no, no. <laughs> so... Um, According, first of all, according to CBS Pittsburgh uh, reporting on the incident, the brain was most likely a stolen teaching specimen. So basically go back to the original Frankenstein, that scene where, mm -hmm. uh, what's his name, Fritz goes in to steal a brain. Mm -hmm. And there are the two brains. There's the normal brain and the criminal brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he accidentally <laughs> smashes one of the jars and steals the other one. Uh -huh. Basically that scenario. Um, except in this case, uh, I guess Fritz had other ideas in mind. So two, two tips I want to share for everybody here. First of all, and obviously, do not steal a human brain. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's illegal in the United States to possess a human brain like this. It's illegal to own or possess the remains of a human being other than ashes, uh, you know, with certain caveats, obviously, if you're like a teaching institution, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the ran just a random individual, no, you can't have a brain. You can't have a skull. Um, so that means no head, no brain, no skull, uh, none of that. Second, 
smoking formaldehyde-laced anything is just a terrible <laughs> idea. Do not do it. Um, it can result in a host of issues, including brain damage to your brain, not Freddie, your brain, mm-hmm. lung damage, and body tissue destruction. So just a, some bad choices were made here regarding Freddie. Never smoke Freddie. Yeah. So uh, with that, I think we're going to close out part one here, but I'm excited to come back in part two because we're going we're gonna to get into other cases of head and brain theft. We're going to get into some ancient traditions. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, mythology and folklore. Uh, it should be a really fun time. I can't wait. And then at the end of the week, our, our Weird House Cinema selection is also going to concern brains. We have a really brain-loaded week here. I'm so excited. As Chop Top would say, my brain is burning. (laughs) All right. Well, if your brain is burning and you would like to listen to more Stuff to Blow Your Mind, check out the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. You'll get your uh, core episodes uh, of science uh, and and culture on Tuesdays and Thursdays, that short form artifact on Wednesdays. You get listener mail on Mondays. And yep, Friday is Weird House Cinema. And we run a vault episode, a rerun on Saturdays. Um, if, if you can, rate, review, and subscribe because that helps out the show. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 